Silvercast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Brad Hutnick. And I'm Greg Edge. We're both silviculturists with the Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your hosts for today's show. Gregor, this is the show we've been all been waiting for. Oh no, I was afraid you were going to say that. Are we getting canceled? No, we're not getting canceled. I mean, I don't think so. So, <laughs> hey, uh, wait, Haley, uh, Okay. Nope. She said, nope, we're not canceled. So no, we have not been canceled. Well, that's good because that is a possibility, you know? Yeah. So this isn't that show, right? So we'll have a, when we get canceled, we'll have a party, (laughs) a closing show. We'll have a closing show. It'll be a big blowout. It'll be fun. Uh, Oh boy. But, but no, no, think about what are the questions that we get all the time? Well, I often get asked, how do you put up with Brad Hutnick? Yeah. So no, not that question. You're in a cranky place today, aren't you? You just kind of, you got to dial that. No, no, no. Oh, so, I'm just giving you a hard time. I also yeah. get, do they make you co-host with Brad? And is Brad always on high doses of caffeine or what? <laughs> and if I, if you had 50 more dollars, um, I could make it look like an accident. Whoa, 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 wait, wait. It's all funny until we start talking about putting out contracts on me. So, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, uh, no, no, of course not, Brad. Yeah. Hey, but before I forget, could you give me a ride to my friend Guido's later? Yeah. This used to be funny, Greg. This used to be funny. Now it's getting a little more, you know, like kind of serious. No, okay. no, 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 no. Hey, you know the question we always get. The question we always get asked is what about climate change? Oh, yes. That question. We do get asked that question or various forms of that question a lot. Yep. Well, then today's Silvacast episode should be right up your alley, Brad, because we're going to have a conversation with Stephen Handler and Lewis Iverson. Uh, Stephen is a climate change specialist with the Forest Service's Northern Research Station and the Northern Institute of Applied Climate Science, or what we call NIACS. And Lewis is a recently retired researcher from the Forest Service Northern Research Station and NIACS as well. And as you know, Lewis has done some really fantastic work on the climate change tree atlas. Yep. So those are the questions that I think are going to be, this is going to be a great episode for dealing with those questions. So hang on, this is going to be a fun one. And today's episode of Silvacast is brought to you by SAF, the Society of American Foresters. Since 1900, SAF has been the cornerstone of the forestry and natural resources profession. Its members are practitioners, researchers, teachers, advisors, administrators, and students who believe in advocacy, respect, science, honest communication, and professionalism. Join today to branch out and connect to this expansive network of professionals at eForester.org. Stephen Handler, Lewis Iverson, welcome to Silvacast. Hey, guys. Thank you. Hey. Hey. So, Stephen, uh, just for those people out there who aren't familiar with you, you're really familiar to us in the Lake States, and you're kind of like our, our guiding light on climate change and climate and how we integrate climate change into what we do. But just in case someone's been living in a yurt in the back of the woods for a long time, uh, what is the Northern Institute of Applied Climate Science, and what is your role there? 
Thanks, Brad. You're making me feel pretty good. Uh, I <laughs> hope so. I hope so. The Northern Institute of Applied Climate Science, or NIACS, is a collaborative organization, a collaborative effort among the Forest Service, universities, conservation organizations, and also the forest industry. So we have a, a steering group or like a board of directors of organizations and universities led by the Forest Service. And they created NIACS to provide technical assistance and practical information for land managers who are looking to consider climate change as part of their work, whether that's thinking about climate change risk or thinking about how to manage forest carbon. Um, and so I tell people we're like a climate change help desk for land managers. <laughs> and what's your role there, Stephen? So I coordinate our climate adaptation work across the lake states. So mm -hmm. Northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and in those states, I try to be everywhere and get involved in everything. But we have a big team at NIACS. So my coworkers are specializing in different parts of the country. Okay. Yep. And Brad, I was thinking of a yurt in Price County while grouse hunting, but that's just another story. I suppose yurt, it, it's, it all works. Um, and, and, and longtime listeners may recall that we've had, uh, we've had questions and I think uh, some other feedback from Stephen and Houghton as a part of the show. So Stephen, you've been in the background for a long time on this. So this is great. Long time listener, first time caller. Thanks yeah. guys. Hey, there you go. Now, and Lewis, you're, you're recently retired from the forest service, uh, but you've really been instrumental in, in the development of the climate change tree atlas, which we'll be discussing today. Tell us a little bit about your career path and how you became involved in this research. Sure. Well, I grew up on a farm in North Dakota, married a Minnesota girl. I got a PhD in grassland ecology, reclamation ecology, reclaiming uh, <clears throat> grasslands in western North Dakota after mining. Spent a year and a half in England on a Fulbright scholarship, again doing uh, restoration, then got to the Illinois Natural History Survey in 1981. In 1982, I began training in this new thing called GIS, Geographic Information Systems, out at ESRI with Jack Dangerman. And and I also became a part of a lot of forestry things in Illinois. So suddenly I turned from a grassland ecologist to a forest ecologist and then a landscape ecologist that I've been involved in quite a lot in the last four decades then. Uh, so it's been interesting watching the technology change uh, with this GIS effort in the last four decades where we used to have a you know, a 300 megabyte file or disk the size of a washing machine. And uh, now we're seeing them a little bit <clears throat> smaller than that. But at any rate, with respect to the Atlas and how I became involved with that again, 30 years ago, when I joined the Forest Service, um, I was asked to work with this issue and I've been doing it ever since. Uh, it is near and dear to me uh, professionally and personally. I think, you know, we have a a major issue on our hands here. And what really gives me hope is that the, um, the trees are a natural solution. So I'm glad to be a part of this today, as well as uh, you know talking about the Atlas and trying to help uh, people use it to the best that they can. Yep. Well, certainly, certainly Brad and I get asked a lot of times about climate change related questions and silviculture. And we wanted both of you to come on and just have a conversation today about maybe some of these tools 
uh, and resources that are available to foresters out there to help that integrate that into their forestry. And the tree atlas is a big one that we all use and is a really powerful tool. So I want to kind of dig into that. Uh, and like usual, Brad, we're just kind of having a conversation here. Um, so, so let's just say uh, for the sake of argument, we're having this discussion at a local favorite establishment. Uh, it could be such as what, Brad? The do drop in. Okay. Yep. And uh, our local bartender over there, Stosh, you know, he's a typical bartender, really curious. And, you know, he's working the work the drinks and uh, he wants to know, you know, what is this tree atlas? So I guess, what is the short explanation of what that thing is? Yeah, well, we're trying to uh, produce an online tool, again, a tool, a guideline that helps not only the foresters, but also the public understand what they have now as far as trees and what could happen to those trees in the future under various scenarios of climate change. So it's, a, it's again, it's a tool that is to help educate folks on what they have and what may, may change in the future. And, and underneath that, so the model then is actually a whole bunch of, of different parts, right? So, you, so you're going to have lots of different things that kind of feed into that and tell you kind of the, what you have now and then what we might, what we might expect. Um, so this covers, um, how many species does this cover? Is it is just a fraction of the species we have or is it everything? Again, our area of interest right now is the eastern U.S., 100th meridian drive, driving right down from North Dakota through Texas. And uh, there's 125 species on the atlas where we have models projecting into the future and another 23 that are insufficient information to really make good models for future projections. So that's a total of 148 species that we're dealing with in this uh, eastern U.S. And that's most of the species, but not all of them. Is there a similar effort for Western U.S., Lewis? I'm just curious. No, not yet, although our team is heading that way right now. I have to mention Ananta Prasad has been with us for many years. Steve Matthews and Matt Peters, those four are the, and myself, are the ones that have been de developing this. And uh, they continue to work west and into Canada as well. So stay tuned. And I know Brad mentioned, as he said, there's multiple moving parts to this. And I know one of those parts of the model is this distribution model. Can you tell us what that tells us about these trees? Well, this distrib, the distrib model is basically looking at habitat suitability, not necessarily where the species will be, but what kind of habitat uh, is out there. So Right now, we use the models to generate, you know, what are the, we have 45 different variables and we're saying, okay, what are the variables most related to where the species is now? And of the 45, you know, about eight of them, seven or eight are climate related. So then we change the climate according to scenarios in the future. We have several scenarios I can talk about in a bit if you'd like, but we change the climate and then what happens to that suitable habitat? Oftentimes it moves to the north because we're having warmer temperatures farther north according to the models. So basically that's one component is, will there be suitable habitat for the species in the future? And that's one thing that 
I know in the past I've been confused about. So you're saying this suitable habitat is not just about the climate variables that affect where that species is. It's about all the diff or a, a whole suite of characteristics that determine where a species grows. Sure. A lot of soil variables, obviously, we all know texture matters, you know, drainage matters, topographic influence matter, pH matters, all these things are important for uh, defining the habitat for any particular species. Yep. And then digging into that habitat suitability, it's it, at least, and, and you can correct me where I go off the rails here, but, but I think that's kind of based then on on that projected importance value for the species. And so what is that and how is that used here? The importance value is basically it's what we use to calculate both from the FIA, the forest inventory plots, which we have over 100,000 of them that we're working with in the Eastern US. What we do then is we look at the number of stems on a plot and the basal area of the trees on a plot and we give them each equal weight. So a species can be uh, ha have a high importance value if, if it's very common and small or if it's less common and large, they can have a very high, high importance value. And so that's how we, we rank all our species by importance value. And then if the species is going to gain habitat, you'll see an increase in importance value. If it's going to lose habitat in the future, you'll see a decrease in that importance value in the future. Think of importance value kind of like dominance in an area. So like if, if one species was completely dominant in an area, it would have an importance value of 100. And as, as that species has to share habitat with other species in the community, that importance value would, would come down and diminish to all the way down to zero if it didn't exist or didn't have habitat in that area. Is that right, Lewis? Yes, zero to hundred scale. Yep. Yep. And so maybe that, and and maybe that's in my way of thinking that too. Then, then maybe we don't necessarily have a value with it too. Like I think of the example of sugar maple in many of our uh, stands in northern Wisconsin, where the stands have been simplified over time. There, that sugar maple would have a really high importance value, but because we appreciate diversity on the sites, we might actually want something lower. So we're, so that importance value may not necessarily be better because it's high or better because it's low. It just has to be in the context of that site. That's, that's right. It's a, it's a relative score relative to uh, all the other species on the plot. So just so I have this straight, we, with this model, you look at those current distribution of species in FIA and you calibrate the model based on that, and then you start to tweak those climate variables within that model to then see how those importance values or suitable habitats change over time. Does that That's sound correct. about That's right? Correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think you mentioned this, you said some species you're more confident about than others, simply maybe because you have more or less data. So, exactly. so how confident are we in kind of the major species or can you say something about that confidence level of the model? Yeah, each species gets a model reliability score. We have high, medium, and low. Um, we get those scores based on five statistical features of the model. How consistent is the model? We're running the model 
a hundred or five hundred times, you know, and then if it's consistently saying the same thing each time, well, then that gives a lot more reliability. Or if it's all over the map, it, it's less reliable. And so you were right. If you have less data, these rare uh, species just aren't very good, aren't very easy to model because there's not enough data. So, so thinking about so maybe the conversation so far. So if we look at species and we look at that importance value and that habitat suitability, then if your habitat suitability or if your importance value increases, then we, we kind of think of that though. And just thinking about for the future and these generalized things, that would be more of a winner with climate change, correct? Correct. But maybe this is the time to uh, point out that our Atlas, now we're at version four of the Atlas and we're, this version has a lot more components to it related to location so that you can uh, divide the country into one by one degree cells. That's about 69 north-south miles, 55 east-west miles. You can divide the country that way, or you can divide it by national forests or states or um, NIACs regions or Huck watersheds. We divided it up. And then what we can do then is to evaluate more than just habitat suitability but we can look at the capability of the species by uh, accounting for its abundance and its adaptability as well. So we, we basically put together three components, the adaptability, the um, abundance of the species and the habitat suitability changes. And with that, we get a capability analysis. So if a, if a species is uh, like sugar maple is common in Northern Wisconsin, mm -hmm. It has more places to find refugia in the future, even though the conditions, according to our models, are going to be less suitable. The fact that it's so common there, there's going to be niches and coves and what have you for the species to get to. So we're saying the capability of sugar maple will still be pretty high there in, in northern Wisconsin, for example. Um, and so... I just want to emphasize that we have this information in tables, over a thousand tables across the eastern U.S. that provides location-based information on all the species that are there. And that's one of the new features that we have um, in this version four of the Atlas. I'm always curious when I look at those maps and those changes about a habitat that maybe no longer becomes suitable, but the species is obviously there. It's not going to disappear immediately tomorrow. What do both of you think about, if you had to predict, what will happen to those species in those areas where maybe the habitat suitability goes away or it shifts north or whatever? Well, I guess I'll start. Basically, you know, regeneration where, is where main things happen with respect to long-term forests. Um, in a situation where the climate is less suitable, you may see less satisfactory regeneration, and therefore, eventually, you'll, you'll see a change that way. Um, obviously, you know, you've had many silvercasts about oak regeneration and so forth, and um, there's a tangling of the situation because oaks are having such a difficult time getting regenerated right now, even though a lot of our models are saying 
in the future, the habitat suitability will be greater for for um, for oaks. And so it's key to remember that um, we have to have the we have to have the propagules available. So the management has to happen to keep oak on the landscape during this interval. There may be times in the future where the oak will have more regeneration success because some of the competitors will have less success in the scenario you described, Greg, where, um, you know, a, a species is too long of a drought period and a, and a, and a you know, seedling just can't handle it or what have you in order to, to uh, you know, thrive in the future climate. So, so does the model then, so we, we just mentioned the regeneration dough. So does it address then that future regeneration potential of the species that may be winners or losers? Not directly. Um, no. it's, it's a situation where, you know, we have these modification factors that kind of get at, there's 23 factors, nine, nine uh, biological factors, and I guess it's 21 and, and 12 disturbance factors. These one of the biological factors relates to how well it can regenerate um, as seedlings and so forth, but it's it's very small component of what's being done in the tree atlas. So in general, no, we don't really have a good handle on on regeneration in the model per se. Just what the conditions may be like, so that uh, one can uh, understand maybe the uh, possible you know, conditions that are difficult for regeneration for species, particular species. To add to how Lewis just described that, I think of the tree atlas results as kind of a, um, a way to describe potential and future possibilities, but not necessarily a prediction or a roadmap of how those changes are going to happen. So, so Greg, you asked, what happens if a, if a species shows reduced suitable habitat in the future? Mm-hmm. And we get this all the time for really important species in the upper Midwest, like Aspen shows reduced suitable habitat in many areas by the end of the century. And that doesn't mean that all of the Aspen is going to fall over or burst into flames all at once. <laughs> but I tell people what it clues you into is that the Aspen that is left behind when suitable habitat declines or leaves an area entirely that aspen is going to be growing further outside of its comfort zone and further and further away from its optimum or, or desired conditions. And so you could expect, like Lewis mentioned, maybe regeneration are the regeneration failures could be the pinch points, mm-hmm. or it could be, you know, more exposure to, to stress and disease, especially with aspen, you know, drought risk is something we're increasingly worried about in the future. And then on the, the flip side of that, like you were just saying, Lewis, if, if you've got a species that ex- is expected to gain suitable habitat, well, it's not a guarantee that that tree is going to be there to occupy that suitable habitat. You may have to make management decisions now, maybe even some really intense or drastic man- management decisions to make sure that, that that species is around even to capitalize on that potential. Yeah, I mean, that's the real key question, isn't it, that foresters ask you, Stephen, is do I manage for the species that's here today, uh, but maybe its suitable habitat is declining or decreasing? Or, you know, what does that management look like? Maybe I, I manage for the species as I have in the past, but I try to keep, 
increasing my options of some of these other more suitable species um, moving into this area. I'm just, I know as a forester, I struggle with more of the immediate next rotation or treatments that I have to put into a plan or a prescription. And I'm working with what I see today. I, I like that way of approaching it though, Stephen, because it's kind of saying, you know, just expect to see down the line that you're going to have issues. And so there, so like a good example, like that Aspen, it may not be that we, that it's the easy Aspen that we have now, you may just expect to see in, increased problems, but it's not necessarily that we won't have it. Right. Yeah. And it's, and there's no, there's no one playbook that says right. how a forester is supposed to respond to any of these potential risks or changes. You could take the same, you could take the same risk for Aspen and you could come up with different ways to respond to that risk. And so in some ways that's the, the easiest part of my job because I get to say, well, it depends on your situation. <laughs> And I don't have to come up with the exact answer on how everyone should respond, but, but that's also the hardest part of my job because yeah. people are, are looking for answers and, and help. And you really just have to help them through the process. It's, it's the tree atlas information is the start of the process. It's not going to be the end of the process of deciding what to do. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's just more, providing more accurate information for you to make decisions on, but it's not going to give you the answer. Yeah, I think that's fair. So it's interesting with the, with the models we've talked about so far, it talks about whether a species will maybe have more problems in a site or fewer problems in the site. And it talks about the importance value of, you know, is it going to be more or less common within these areas? Does the model tell us about the, the ability of species to actually get to these areas, so get to new habitat or, or move uh, to these better habitats? Yes, it does. We have the, uh, a new component in version four called SHIFT that works with that. Uh, we, we make the assessment that uh, Holocene period, we had 50 kilometers per century of migration naturally. So that's where we start. We make that assumption that if it was fully forested conditions, Trees can move about 50 kilometers per century. I think that's about three miles per decade. Hmm. And so we look at that. And then if you have a fragmented forest, we reduce that. Um, statistically, we re reduce the amount of darts that can be thrown ahead. So basically what this migrate model or shift model does is throws darts out ahead. And if you have a lot of important, high important species next to the boundary, you get more darts thrown ahead. So basically, uh, we run that for 100 years, and that gives you a handle on what species may get there naturally uh, in 100 years. So we have in these tables that I've described, we have uh, a number of species that are, we call migrate species. For example, I looked at, um, I looked at northern Wisconsin, and we have um, 60 species that we're working with that are there now, and 23 species could have new habitat showing up there within the next 100 years, according to you know, various scenarios of climate change. Of those 23 species that might have new habitat, uh, under low emissions, um, our models say six of those could appear in the northern north woods there in 100 years' time. And if we're talking about high emissions, 
the migrate model shows about 11 species could appear by 100 years time in the future. So that's how we're integrating this migration model into the uh, suitability model. So we got two arms going on. We got an arm waving going on. There's habitat suitable or not. And then we have another one. Can the species get there or not? And so there's a lot of uncertainty associated with that. But again, like like Stephen said, this atlas is to be kind of a, a guide to kind of reduce this plethora of decisions that may be there uh, out there for the foresters as they come. So, Lewis, I'm wondering on that shift model, does it look at the species, different species in different ways and consider that some species migrate more easily? They have further seed dispersal, for example. Does it incorporate that? No, unfortunately, at this time, it does not. It uses the same 50 kilometers per century mm. for all species. That's the, the average that the paleontologists have told us, and we, we just don't have enough information. Obviously, there is a variation there. You know, if you look at some of the oaks and blue jays, they can move acorns from woodlot to woodlot pretty quickly. But um, and our models so far are just okay. static 50 kilometers per century. Yeah. Would it take into account then um, like forest fragmentation or urban areas that might be like things that might block migration? Yes, it does. So the 50 kilometers per century are, you know, under a fully full forested condition. And then that's reduced down to more like 10 kilometers per century if you're in a pretty highly fragmented situation. So I have a question for both Lewis and Stephen. You guys have worked with this tool, obviously, developed it, worked with it a lot. What would you say are some of the most unexpected things that you've learned looking at these different model results? Okay, well, with me, it's a situation where, you know, we have this climate boundary going on. Uh, climate is the major primary variable that seems to be putting the bookends on the ranges of species. And then within that, there's a lot of other variables that interact here. You know, the topographic variables or the soil variables seem to kind of zero in on, on more uh, localized situations. So it's unexpected how some of those will play out. Um, and, you know, we get surprised by, you know, some species tend to um, really kind of explode in, in, in suitable habitat, um, like post oak is one of the, or winged elm. Those are a couple species that seem to just go crazy in suitable habitat. And, you know, it's not an, an expected thing. It's a, a statistical piece that we don't trust fully biologically we kind of think that might be some statistical things going on that we can't control hmm. so those are unexpected but you know when you look at this this atlas again version four first one was 1998 we had very coarse level of information we had you know county level environmental data and you know it's been pretty interesting to watch how the models are either consistent for many species through these different iterations of our models. Some are, you know, harder to explain the differences of species. For example, uh, sugar maple, we used to think it was going to be 
hit a lot harder by climate change than we do now. And so some of those, you know, we just can't, you know, we can't know what would be the outcome until we get there. But, you know, expected or not expected, there's quite a bit of variation there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for, for me, I think the tree atlas results, when I look at them broadly or for a specific place on the landscape, something that always occurs to me is that this model really helps you understand that tree species are individuals. They're not going to all respond the same way to climate change, even two species that you might expect to have a similar kind of outcome like balsam fir and northern white cedar. You see them growing in the same stand. You might expect they would both respond the same way, but in many places they have different trajectories um, in this model. And so that's always a good reminder for me to take, take each one on its own terms. Well, and I know in my previous life as a tree breeder too, just genetically, we see differences in performance across the species. And sometimes you find, you know, particular provenances that for some reason do well in a variety of places. So I think that's probably another factor that's going to play into this moving forward. Yeah, that's a good point, Greg. The, you know, Anantha Prasad in our group has done quite a bit of work with uh, intraspecific variation. And indeed, you know, you can't always put, you know, sugar maple or red maple or something in one hopper. There will be differences in southern strains versus the northern strains. And so that's a, a, that's a good point. The different provenances will behave differently as well. And thinking of that, then maybe that, that kind of drove my mind into tree planting. So if uh, what, uh, Cruising through the atlas earlier, I noticed there was a, a, a species selection option score for, for helping maybe foresters looking at planting trees. How does that work? Yeah, that's, again, part of this new tabular way that we summarize things. I want to emphasize, again, that one of the key things we want to um, encourage people to use is this location-based information as opposed to species-based information. You know, up until version four, we could tell you a lot about any individual species, but now we can tell you about any individual, you know, one by one degree grid or national forest or what have you. And so when you look at these SSOs or the species selection options, um, that's one way to give a forester an idea of what the models are suggesting maybe uh, a way to kind of zero in on species to consider. Again, just as a guideline, they got to use their local knowledge and what the sites are all like. But the point is, if it has a zero, that means we really don't encourage that to be a key species to plant. If it has a one, it's uh, our, our models are suggesting that it's a good species to plant. It's there now. It has a good adaptability and it's a good one to plant. If it's a two, that's one that indicates that the species is fairly uh, uncommon or rare or next or nearby. And so it might be one of these migrate species that we encourage folks if they wanna be proactive and do some assisted migration, they may be um, ones that they could use. And then if it has a three, it's not recorded in that species in that area, but it does have a chance of getting colonized within 100 years. And so 
Those would be the, uh, again, assisted migration species if one wants to consider um, being proactive in that way. But we have other ways in the table too. There, there's a migrate and infill section that tells species, you know, gives you ideas on what species might be good to use as an assisted migration. I know that's a question that Brad and I get often is just about this whole topic of assisted migration and <clears throat> what's appropriate and what's not. And I imagine, Stephen, you get that question as well, or I know you do. Yeah, absolutely. And it can really, maybe not alarm, but it can really drive people to, to think about what are the bad things that could happen in these situations. I think a lot of, a lot of our invasives and things were introduced, not, not foreseeing some of those some issues with that. So it probably is one of those things that we really need to be careful about. But, but that being said, we still need to embrace as a tool. Yeah. And that's, again, you know, what I want to emphasize, this is a guideline uh, where these, like, for example, Northern Wisconsin, I should said there's six species that we identified as potential uh, ones for migration, assisted migration. Um, they're already nearby. They're already planted by folks, you know, in various ways. And they're already, you know, they're already uh, shown to be um, adjusted to the climate and so forth. And, you know, limit, very limited um, problems with it, you know, going off into a, an invasive mode. So, yeah, you have to be very careful about this. But I think it's more of a problem in the herbaceous world than it is in the in the forest and tree world. So we've kind of delved into some of the detail then of both the the distribution part of the model, the migration part of the model. And I'm curious, kind of on the broad view of things, both from Lewis, your perspective and Stephen's perspective, how do you hope foresters will utilize this information and maybe how do you hope that they will integrate it into their management decisions? So I work quite often with foresters and landowners to help them think about how they might factor climate change information into their planning. And so, yeah, like we said, the tree atlas can really be a useful starting point to ask some of those questions and to get people thinking along those lines. I, I have a few different ways that I like to see people using tree atlas information. First of all, I'd like to see people considering tree atlas results when they're looking at forest inventory data. And so if you're gathering information about a stand and you have you know, information about the, the composition and abundance of trees at different size classes in your stand, you can use tree atlas information to layer on top of that and basically get a sense of what's my risk and opportunity at different levels of the forest canopy? And do I have maybe a different amount of risk in my overstory compared to my understory? Do I have different risks in some parts of my property compared to other parts of my property? So I, I like to see people use this tree atlas information to kind of gauge risk for starters. And then that, that gets people asking questions about well, what is it about my property or what is it about my stand? What kind of local factors might cause my trees in my place to either do better or worse than this general tree atlas model might expect? 
and then we're we're really back into the um, you know the bailiwick of what foresters are used to thinking about day in and day out. What are the soils on this property? What are existing or future forest health issues? Do I have you know stressors or or past management concerns that are kind of limiting the potential of this site? Then so you can you can basically start trying to get a a more customized view and decide well whether you think um, whether your site might have reasons to really depart from the tree atlas information or whether you think it makes really good sense for your property. Um, so it's a it's a great place to have those kind of discussions about local level factors. Yeah, and I, I love that suggestion of integrating it into your recon. I know Brad and I, we've done that uh, on a few projects, not across everything, but that's just gives you a really useful picture uh, to add to that prescription writing process. So I hope that we integrate more of that on a regular basis into our recon systems. And we've talked about planting decisions already a, a couple times in this discussion. And, you know, if, if you're planning artificial regeneration or if you think there's opportunities to plant on a property or in a stand going forward, Similarly, I hope you're using tree atlas information to, to consider options. And so not to say that we, we would ever discourage people from planting species that are expected to lose suitable habitat, but we want people to be thinking about that and making sure it's a, it's a decision you're making with your eyes open and not necessarily pouring a lot of energy and investment in species that expect to be really threatened by climate change. Maybe you can use tree atlas information to provide a more balanced uh, array of choices for tree planting, add some new diversity into the mix than you might've considered otherwise. And obviously, you know, we, we don't tell people to go ahead and plant all of the potential increasers suggested by the tree atlas. You know, we don't want everyone mm -hmm. betting on the, the trees that might have suitable habitat in a hundred years almost always there are winners on that list that could either be promoted or, or planted in some areas where that looks like they have a good chance of thriving and providing some necessary ecological value or uh, uh, economic value to the landowner in the future. Yeah, very well said, Stephen. I think um, I, would, I would just emphasize again that it's to be a, a tool to help make, you know, reduce some of the plethora of decisions that are out there and that uh, not only foresters, but, you know, travelers can, when I travel, I like to pull out a, a table and learn what species I might see in that area, what would be the hierarchy of, you know, importance across those species. So, uh, you know, it's just for Eco-literacy basically is also a key thing that I'm trying to, you know, encourage with the use of this atlas. The atlas feels like a really robust tool that we're just going to find more and more uses for. But Stephen, I'm, I'm curious. So you work with foresters regularly kind of talking about these. Are there other resources that we that we as foresters should be considering when we're considering like the, the silviculture or day-to-day -day management of the stands that we're looking at? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about two things. First of all, Tree Atlas is um, it's a fantastic tool, as we've talked about, but it's not the only way that foresters can learn about climate change risks or opportunities in a site. In many cases, depending where you're working, 
uh, in the country, there may already be assembled information that can add flavor and depth to what the tree atlas provides. So for example, in, in many places in the Midwest and Northeast, NIAX has worked with a large range of partners to produce climate change vulnerability assessments for forests in different uh, portions of the country. And so these vulnerability assessments, you know, we rely on the management experience uh, and published research like the tree atlas model results to get kind of a combined sense of what's most at risk, what's likely to change in this particular landscape over the next century. So we have vulnerability assessments that are broken down by major forest cover types in most of the landscape. And so that adds additional information on things that the tree atlas doesn't include like pests and diseases and how climate change may contribute to those or the effects of deer browse or potential effects to the fire cycle in different landscapes. So, so I would always encourage people to look for more complete assessments that look at climate change. The other thing I'll mention is that if you feel like you're having trouble uh, weaving your way through all of this information and actually making decisions about how to manage a particular property, NIAX has some planning tools that can help people think about how to factor climate change into their work. In particular, we have a tool called the Adaptation Workbook. It is kind of like it sounds. It's a, it's a workbook where you fill in your answers and you respond to prompts and worksheets. But we basically break this sometimes complicated process of climate adaptation basically into a sequence of logical steps. And as you answer questions in this logical sequence, you end up creating your own custom adaptation plan for your property or the place where you're working. I would also put a plug in for the field guides that NIAX has helped develop. If you're looking for in a cliff notes version of a lot of this stuff, which I know many of us often are, I find those very useful. You're telling me you don't sit down and read a nice chapter of a climate <laughs> vulnerability assessment to put yourself to sleep every night? I mean, it's great. It's great for the insomniacs out there. Well, yeah, I do, Stephen, but, you know, I didn't want that public knowledge. So thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot, buddy. Yeah, yeah, you haven't spent a night in a bar with the two of us yet because that's when they come out. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get, so out your I, work, get out your workbook. That's right. If a 250-page document isn't your cup of tea, like Greg mentioned, we do have smaller bite-sized um, packages for this information, like laminated spiral-bound field guides for a couple of states in the upper Midwest right now, and we're, we're working on a more complete series of these. Well, we could have this conversation go on because there's just so many different elements to it, but I'm, I'm really happy. I think that gives a good picture of some of these tools that I hope field foresters start to, and I know they are, integrate into their silviculture and their management. So I really thank you guys for both of you for coming and having a conversation with us today on Silvacast. Well, thank you. Could I just mention the the website itself can be found if you just Google Google climate change tree atlas, it'll come up. Its actual uh, URL is fs.fed.us. So 
Forest Service Federal US slash NRS, Northern Research Station slash Atlas. So those would get you there. And when you get to the front page, you will have a set of four tutorials that'll very briefly but quickly tell you what you can expect to get out of the Atlas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like those. I listened to them. They were good. And, and you guys probably didn't read the fine print when you agreed to come on the show. So you guys are now a lifeline for all of our future climate change questions we get. So, <laughs> so we'll be, we'll be in touch with you for sure. We could make it a regular mailbag feature. I like yeah, that. There you go. Yeah, that's, that's right. Cool. I'll pull out the retired card once in a while though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll give you some slack there. <laughs> But now we have to call Stosh over because uh, we need another round. <laughs> well, again, thank you, Lewis. Thank you, Stephen, for coming on Silvercast. Yep. Appreciate well, it. Take care. Yep. Thanks, Thanks. This was lots of fun. That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, whatever you want to give us, and share them with our listeners. Hey, Brad, we did get a question about white oak direct seeding, but we're going to hold that one till the next episode. But we still want to hear from you. So please drop us a line and let us know if you're enjoying the podcast or if you have any questions. Giddy up. Use the Dropbox to let us know if you're a listener and we'll put you in the mix for our year end drawing. Oh, yeah. The drawing. Uh, we're still doing that. We're still doing that. And in Greg, in fact, we have shout outs this week. So last week we, or last month, we started with uh, shout outs. This, uh, let's see, who did I hear from? I heard from Rich in Merrill. He's a regular listener. We heard from Maggie in Winter, who's really enjoying the show. Mm -hmm. And just yesterday, I talked with Michael and Margaret in Wisconsin Rapids, who said they can't live a month without Silvacast. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Well, and they, they, they didn't say exactly that, but that's what they meant. And just for doing a shout out, they get into the drawing. They get into our year end colossal drawing. Colossal drawing. What, what is the prize, Brad? Well, it, it, those are details, Greg. This, we work these out as we get mm. closer to the year end, but don't worry, rest mm. assured, we are going to have a drawing. Okay. I'm going to hold you to that. Let's do it. So you can reach us at UW Stevens Points Wisconsin Forestry Center by emailing wfc at uwsp.edu. Feel free to include a sound file of your question or comment if you like. Your feedback is really important to helping shape Silvacast. So please do not hesitate to reach out with a question, a topic idea, or any other kind of feedback that keeps us in line. Brad, this was a very moving episode. Yeah, I wish they'd move it to Pittsburgh. Oh, the, the booth. booth. In any event, take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team, Haley Freighter, our amazing producer, Noah LeMade, IT master, theme music by Paul Freighter, and of course, UW Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center. <laughs>